they change the way of them doing business, it may be the end of the company. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Watches and People, episode number 10, episode number 11, sorry. And today we have our special international guest, Rob. All right, and Hello. also Woody with us today. All right, so to start the show today, Rob, I'll leave it to you to introduce to the guests. Who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Rob Nuts. I am a watchmaking consultant, primarily working with Arconaut Watches in Denmark as their head of brand development up there. But I also write for Revolution and just started writing for SJX actually uh, last week and have a long history in the media and also formerly as a watchmaker myself. So... I do whatever I need to do, basically. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So, like, with all this rich experience in, in like horology, how did you first get started into like getting yourself into watches? Where does it came from? No. Well, professionally, my career started twenty years ago when I was seventeen and working in H Samuel's, which is one of the Signet Group stores in the UK. I worked there initially as a summer job, which my ex girlfriend got for me at the time, and I didn't intend to be interested in watches i just fell in love with watches when i got the chance to work with them up close and personal and then ever since my uh journey has got deeper and deeper into the industry in all different ways so oh okay so prior to prior to that before your first gig at 17 were you like interested in watches yeah i had this revelation when i was about six years old i think i was doing a christmas play with my primary school and i was playing one of the lead roles and at one point in the play, this kid has to look at his wrist, at his watch, of course, and slap his forehead in shock because Santa Claus is late. And my teacher told me that I just needed to draw a watch on a piece of paper and she'd cut it out and I could wear it. And I went extremely method on her and I was like, no, this is not how I act. This is not how I perform. I need a real watch. And so I insisted that we sourced a real watch from somewhere. And luckily, my best friend James at the time had just saved up enough uh, caps from tubes of Smarties, you know, the little sugar-coated chocolate sweets. Yeah. And he'd saved up, I don't know, 10 caps and sent off a postal order for £3.50. And he got this digital watch, which had a bright blue, electric blue. And it looked like a swatch, really, but it had, like, just Smarties on the dial and a little tiny digital readout around 6 o'clock. And he let me wear this watch for the performance. And ever since then, I was uh, avid watch admirer, but from afar until I was bought my first watch by my dad when I was 11, and that was a Casio digital with an alarm function, which was good for school. Oh, amazing. Do you still have that watch right now? Like, you know not what? the smartest one. No, no. Regrettably, I have neither. My, James took his watch back, unfortunately, and the Casio, I have no idea what happened to it, but at some point along the way, it just disappeared. Ah, uh, oh well. So on, on that note, do you consider yourself, I'm like, just interested in, right? Are you, are you consider yourself like a, like a sentimental watch collector or whatever goes? Um, I guess as much as it frustrates me, sometimes I am a sentimental collector. A lot of the pieces that I have in my collection now, in fact, the vast majority of the ones I intend to keep are ones that I have a sentimental attachment to. The problem is having had 20 years career already and acquired quite some watches, I struggle to downsize my collection because so many of them mean something. So many are a testament to a time that I worked with a certain colleague that I remember fondly or like in many cases now they're watches I was involved in creating so it can be quite tough to uh to live with a light watch collection these days 
Uh, I think we, we all here resonate with that. I think both of us realizing that, or we feel guilty buying another watches when you see it. <laughs> all right, there are uh, watches that were neglected in our collections. Like, are we even? Do we give the permission to ourselves to buy more where we know that the the, the more watches are going to get further neglected, right? So, I think that's, no, that's an issue. Terrible. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I I've, I've acquired quite some watches, like I say, and I am trying to downsize at the moment actually, but I do go through this problem. Um, all the time looking at my box of watches and think, what can I do without? Which ones can I move on from? And actually, interestingly, I had an experience not so long ago that shaped my perception of the nature of ownership in general and changed my approach to it. I, I had my sunglasses, my mascot sunglasses stolen from me out of my uh, bum bag on the street. And uh, it was quite devastating because I loved those sunglasses and I saved up for quite a long time to buy them when I did buy them. And I thought about buying the same pair again because I didn't want to not have them in my, in my life. But then I thought about it a little more and I realized that the person that stole those sunglasses, when they realize what they stole, will be very happy about the fact that they chose the right sunglasses to steal. And that continuation of enjoyment of an object, shall we say, suddenly appeared to me as limitless. So when I bought my first Omega Speedmaster, for example, when I started writing for Fratello watches, I swore that I would never sell that watch. It was a Broad Arrow 1998 replica Speedmaster. I still have it. I love it. But I thought, this is going to be in my collection for the rest of my life. And now I thought, you know, I don't wear it so much anymore. I'm no longer with Fratello. Maybe I could move on from it and buy something that is more sentimental to me now. And the fact that I realized that you can sell a watch that you love to somebody else that falls in love with that watch as well. And they can sell that watch eventually to someone else that falls in love with it. And so a watch has this almost yeah, boundless capacity to give new emotion and it sometimes seems a little selfish to just hold on to it all for myself like i've had my real rush of enjoyment when it came to acquiring that watch i went through a period of wearing it every day and now perhaps it's time for me to experience something else and in the process somebody else can experience the joy that i did in those first days of owning it so an evolution wow all right i think that that that's going to be a quick uh, key takeaway for me i think it's, it's something i should tell myself to let go of my watches right now <laughs> you know it oh, helps man. you know because if you're feeling like emotionally attached to something and you know that it's unhealthy to hold on to all of these items that you can't possibly give enough love and attention to when you have so many remind yourself that you are allowing somebody else to experience what you've experienced with that watch and i mean we can't take any of this stuff with us you know so we might as well enable it to create as much happy feelings in the world as it can while we're here well said well said all right let's let's talk about um in terms of your first career right i mean like how do you get started out with the swatch group or slash omega and how do you go from there so after falling in love with watchmaking when i was around 17 i left the industry full-time and worked only part-time while i was studying at university, which I was a path I shouldn't really have followed, to be honest. It was just a standard path that had been laid out for me, and I didn't really question it. And I went to the University of Sheffield and did a BSc in archaeological science while working in jewelers and in the fashion industry around it at that time. And so I started looking into ways to get back into the industry in my second or third year at university because I had so little contact time. I was mostly working as a clothing designer, and I thought, oh, I love working with my hands, so what can I do? either tailoring or watchmaking seemed to be the obvious answer. So I researched both and I decided that watchmaking looked harder and maybe more prestigious. And around that time, the British School of Watchmaking had just opened its doors. So I made it my goal to try and get sponsorship from a brand to go and train there and do my well step qualification. 
And the brand that was most accessible to me because of stores in my area was Omega, uh, because of course they're part of the Swatch Group. And I figured if I could possibly get inside the Swatch Group somehow, I would have a better chance of securing sponsorship eventually. So I worked in a for the bank in New York for about 18 months after I graduated before a job came up at the Swatch store in Manchester, where I grew up. And when it did, I left my job at the bank and I took a role as a sales assistant in the Swatch store. And I did that solely so I could get access to the HR contacts at Southampton, uh, the SG UK head office. So I could contact them directly with my application for sponsorship. And I did that relentlessly without any uh, feedback. And then at one point, maybe eight months into my time at Swatch, I got very frustrated and I wrote the same letter of application, um, printed it off about 80 times and sent it to everybody in the HR department four times each on the same day to make sure that they would at least know my name, <laughs> even though they probably would curse it forevermore. I thought that would be a good way to get on their radar. And eventually that resulted in a call back from them saying, okay, fine. You can go to the assessment day at the British School of Watchmaking. Please stop writing to us. I was like, okay, great, fine. Thank you. Because I was running out of printer ink by that point. So it was a fortuitous <laughs> timing. So I went along to the um, admissions screening and we had to do an IQ test and a manual dexterity test and then be interviewed for the position. And I passed all of those tests and gained access to the course. I was one of six students that year, the only one from the Swatch Group. I did a two-year course full-time. And then I went down to Southampton myself and worked for Omega as a watchmaker for two and a half, three years after that, before leaving and joining Bremont. So, wow, amazing! Would would you would you recommend like the audience to take that path as well if they were into watches? Like... If they're into watches and they want to get into watchmaking, the advice I would give is firstly get as close to where you want to be as you possibly can. And so for me, that was working in retail at the time because it was all that was available to me with no other qualifications. Go to events, meet people, talk to people, tell established people in the industry what you want to do. They might have advice, they might have an opportunity or an opening, or they might be willing to coach you or bring you along. Since I established myself in the media landscape, I've met and mentored many, many writers that now fill most of the positions around the world and that's you know deeply satisfying to see the people that came to me with absolutely no right or reason to be in the watchmaking industry just because they loved it and i said yeah okay well there's something there and the passion is the most important thing if you've got passion then you, you can't teach that and you know you can't fake it so that's something worthwhile i wouldn't say that not having any background or any connections or any qualifications is a reason to feel too downhearted none of us were born with qualifications some people born with connections i wasn't it didn't really do me any harm so i would just say keep trying and stay as close to what it is that you want as you possibly can and if you get the chance to take a job in the industry in a field that you don't know anything about and you don't feel like you'll be good enough take it anyway and then find out because you just don't know amazing amazing all right. So I understand that post then, I mean, you were primarily doing like watchmaking back then and not so much right now, more towards the uh, brands or in terms of editorial and so on. How does that change um, for you? Well, I love watchmaking, but I don't think I was ever going to be the best watchmaker. I think that there are masters that just have a manual ability that I would never be able to attain even if i trained relentlessly 
And I knew that pretty early on in my career. I don't think I became a watchmaker with any airs and graces of becoming the best. I didn't think I was going to be the next Kari Butalainen. But I did think that I could be the best watch journalist. And I thought that I could do that by learning my trade from the inside out. I was always uh, an avid writer and I'd been published in other fields before I became a watchmaker. And I thought it was the most genuine way to train as a watch journalist. If I have the writing skills already, that's that's fine. That's done. I don't need to think about that. But what I needed was that genuine connection to the craft. And so moving away from the bench and taking more media-based roles was never a difficult thing for me, never a hard decision. I, I know that my technical understanding of watches has helped me since in product development and movement development. And I can even, I can still do it if I need to. I know how a watch works. I haven't completely lost my touch so I can take a watch to pieces when it's necessary and reassemble it mostly, most of the time. So, <laughs> so that's the important bit. I always forget about that part. But yeah, it wasn't difficult for me to make the transition. And I felt much more comfortable um, in media. And that developed into this consultancy role where I'm able to bring in all the experience I've had now in retail. Because in between being a watchmaker and being a media professional, I was the head of sales for NOMOS in 17, uh, 17 territories around the world. So I had a lot of experience traveling and meeting retailers and training them on how to sell and explain products. So that all feeds into the current role now, being able to work with brands on every front effectively and grow their brands, not just from an emotional perspective, but from a practical perspective as well. Oh, what was your um, role in Bremon after you left Omega? Ah, after I left Omega, I worked at Bremont as mostly a chronograph specialist, I suppose, but I was just a service watchmaker. It just, it wasn't my job title. I wasn't a chronograph specialist. That's just kind of how I describe it because I ended up focusing mostly on chronographs because I love chronographs. Um, one of my favorite complications and also probably my favorite to work on. So yeah, um, I was just a service watchmaker and there was a small team of us. I think when I started, there was me and three other guys and one more bloke joined us during the year I was there, I was only at Bremont for a year. And then I got the Namos job by kind of by chance, actually. I didn't go looking for it. It was just fortuitous. I see. So just just a quick question on like, ever since venturing like past uh, watchmaking into journalism and editorial and so on, I'm sure you get more exposed into the business or sales side of expect, right? Does that change your perception of watch after that because what i meant by that is like when you're in a watchmaking role you're very much focusing on the craft and the art itself whereas on the business side of things it's a little bit different because you've got to focus on profit and you mainly collect certain aspect of the horological aspect of it here yeah absolutely it changes your perception i mean every single thing that you learn about the industry changes your perception in some way hopefully enriches it I guess if I was being honest, it makes you a little more cynical. You know, as a watchmaker, you're able to just dive into your world the size of a postage stamp and forget about everything else and just focus on bringing a watch back to life. It's a very humble pursuit in itself and the connection that you have between the tools and, and the mechanism is, you know, therapeutic, I would say. And then the other side of the industry is far from therapeutic. It's stressful and it's intense and it's competitive and endlessly interesting you know if you think a movement is complex then all of the moving gears of the industry are even more complex and even more fascinating to me at least i mean i, I look at everything as as a chain of cause and effect 
you know, so I look at a movement in the same way that the problem is always identifiable when you understand how the overall mechanism should function. And the same thing can be said of any kind of industry. If you master as many aspects of the industry as you can, you can pick out immediately why something doesn't work or why something will work and hopefully replicate that when you go to a brand and say, look, I can help you grow and I know what you're doing wrong and this is what you need to change. It's effectively like the George Daniels method of watchmaking, but applied to the industry en masse, bringing in retail and design and brand building and all of that. So... Is there a dark side to this, right? Like, for example, a brand that is so focused on their P&L and they start creating movements that no longer are serviceable, they're meant to be re uh, replaced rather than service, and you just neglect or in terms of the expert for watching to this. I mean, there's been many examples of brands that have practiced poor business practices in the past, I would say. A lot of them could maybe be forgiven given the incredible tumult of the latter part of the 20th century, a lot of brands would have made mistakes com completely by accident with no real um, reason to think that the quartz movement was going to come along and almost destroy the mechanical industry. Nowadays, there are certainly brands who are far too focused on, I would say, perpetuating a hype bubble and... Let's take something like Audemars Piguet, for example. It's a storied, beautiful brand, a great history, wonderful products in its past, and it has the Royal Oak. And beyond that, nobody really cares. And that's a big problem for a brand. When you become mono-model, you can't tell the story as richly as it deserves to be told. You become a slave to that piece. Look at what happened when they try and branch out with the 1159. They tried to do something different. And that watch was not a total failure. They did make some early missteps with the dial designs, I think, that didn't really give the case the best chance to shine. But ultimately, that was a decent effort at something new. And people were like, yeah, whatever, next, like, bring me a Royal Oak. I don't care about this. And they really don't care about it enough. The new Wandering Hours version of it is a perfect expression of what that line can be for that brand. But it's taken them years to get that right. And they don't seem to be that committed to it anyway. I believe that we're going to see some change of leadership in AP soon. So, you know, maybe that'll be a complete overhaul for the brand and they'll be focusing on rebuilding or building out again. It's, it's lesser known and often forgotten collections. But that is really, really dangerous to be so focused on one model and to just lean into this hype because eventually all bubbles burst and we're seeing Right now, actually, especially right now, we're seeing the secondary market price bubble burst on a lot of the pieces that have been hyped beyond belief and almost out of attainability for mere mortals over the last five years. And it's happening before our very eyes. So we're seeing, we will see the backlash of negative business practices over the next two or three years as the market restabilizes. Perfect. I couldn't word it any better. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's get into Arcanel. Yeah. So. Tell us more about it. To be to be very frank, I think neither Woody and I has uh, uh, know much know a uh, lot about it. I did some prior research before this particular podcast, but I've decided to just put a pause in that and hear it directly from yourself. Yeah. Okay, so Arcanaut is a small independent Danish brand founded by Anders Brandt, and it is co-owned by Anders and James Thompson, who is better known in the industry as Black Badger. Um, he has worked with um, plenty of Quite big names, Max Busser of MBNF, of course, Linda Verdelin, MW & Co., Giles Ellis of Schofields, and on and on and on and on. He is mostly known 
as a loom godfather. I think that's what he calls himself. So he's a specialist in luminous materials, but really he's a specialist in all materials. He's a, a sculptor in, in the clay, as we like to say, in his, in his den. He sits up there in Gothenburg where he's based and he develops all of the weird and wonderful dial materials that you see in Arkanaut. So we have a very ascetic and typically Scandinavian case design that Anders is responsible for. And then within that, within that case capsule, we harness the madness of James's experimentation that takes place over in Sweden. And the very first model, where the Arc 1, had a subdial, sub-seconds, and an Arabic 12, and it was very popular, and it sold out as a proof-of-concept watch rather quickly. And it was followed up by the Dark Matter Limited Edition, which was a 50-piece run of a slate composite dial that James created from scratch with a proprietary loom developed by RC Tritec, the owners of Superluminova in Switzerland, with whom James is very close for obvious reasons. And that also sold out very quickly. We followed that up with the Fordite series, which is the same case, but with a Fordite dial inside it. Fordite, for anybody that doesn't know, is a waste product of the automotive industry. It's actually oversprayed car paint that has dried and hardened over many, many years into thick layers. And when you cut through it at an angle, you get an almost gem-like surface with swirls of color, which cannot be replicated because they are literally a time capsule. And James works patiently with this stuff. It takes him days to create a, a good, usable dial. And it can be the most exhilarating and the most depressing material to work with because every single micron that he removes from the material to get it down to the appropriate thickness so that it can be fitted into our watch case could change the pattern entirely so he could be working very carefully on a pattern that is just like nothing else he's ever seen for a couple of days and then with the final stroke the whole thing is ruined or he runs into an air pocket or a piece of masking tape would you believe or a nail i don't know we found weird stuff inside the fordite when we cut through it sometimes so it's um it's a, a labor of love and one that punishes him more often than we like to admit, but you know that's part of the charm of the of the watches. Every single piece is genuinely unique, not just unique because of his handcraft and his involvement with it, but unique because of its formation process. There was no contrition in the creation of Fordite. It was completely random and took years and years and years of unwitting overspray to create. So it's majestic, to be honest. And if people get it, they love it. If they don't, that's fine, because it really isn't for everybody, but it is something to behold. Right. So tell me more about that particular model, uh, specifically the Fordite. Is it a, you can, can you consider it a one-of-one one for every pieces that you get? Because it will be a different variation, right? I mean, it's exactly the same case. We have six different rubber bracelet uh, rubber strap options should i say but you can change those easily at home with a normal screwdriver um the dials are completely unique like i say that we don't know what they're going to look like when we start out we only realize that once they're finished and they're good to go and they can never be made again so yeah it's not like i say it's not contrived uniqueness it's not like uh let's pick a brand who likes to do unique pieces uh, let's say let's say mbnf for only watch or something it's not like we're only going to make one of these because we choose to only make one of these with the fordite pieces every piece can only be made once it cannot be made again we have no choice in the matter we're not just saying oh we'll limit it to one piece or two pieces or three pieces or 150 pieces because that's what we think is going to be receptive uh, the market is going to be receptive to no we have no choice it's one of one every single time and sometimes we get dials which are absolutely stunning and blow away 
everybody that sees them and there's a huge rush to try and get them. And sometimes we get dials which kind of just don't have the same vivaciousness. They're still unique. And we know that all that it takes for one dial to match up with the one person is just that connection that you, you can't guess that, you know, you can take 10 Fordite dials into a red bar meeting, for example, and have 30 people look at them and everyone will have a different favorite. You'll have three guys that love this one and five guys that love that one. And there's always one guy that loves the one that nobody thinks anybody could possibly love. And it just amazes you because you realize, well, that's all we need. We only need one customer for each of these. And <laughs> thus far we, we found them. So yeah, we're sold out at the moment, but we are making more as we speak. Right. So I, I have went into this website and have a look at it as well. So if I'm not mistaken, the process is when you order one, you will be presented an options of DAOs one month before you work at delivery and you pick one of those that is your preference, right? So that was the way that we did things um, on paper. It very rarely worked like that because there's no pressure to take a dial that you don't like. You know, we're not going to say this is your one shot of choosing a dial. And if you don't like it, then we're keeping your money and sending you something that you're never going to wear. Of course, we wouldn't do that. And every customer would be able to request a refund if they hadn't found a dial that they liked after a period of time that they deemed you know, uh, excessive. We didn't put a limit on that. We worked directly with people. Everybody understood the fact that we're going to try and find them a dial. We'll show them everything that we make. And if they like it, then they can choose it. And it just worked on a first come first serve basis. However, we're going to change that now. So the new way and the new website is going to launch on August the 14th. I don't know when this podcast is going to be published, but mm -hmm. if it's after August 14th, the new website, Arcanaut.watch is going to be available. So you can go check it out there. And now we are going to list the models that we have in stock on the website so everybody can see them. So we'll notify the guys on the waiting list that have been waiting for ages whenever we have a new piece that's about to go up so they have a chance to buy it themselves. But if not, it's going to go on the website and we're going to try and get ahead of the sales because right now we've sort of been behind ourselves. We've had people come to us and give us the money and just wait for the watch. And sometimes it can take four, five, six, seven, eight batches of dials to go under their nose before they find one they like and that can drag on over months and over years and mm -hmm. from our perspective as a small team with just me anders and james working on this all the time it's it's very draining because we have to do the same customer process multiple times when in mm -hmm. reality we should just say here's what we've got if you want it buy it and then it's done and that's that's how it's going to work going forward great well, on that note what are your thoughts on like more and more micro brands who are not Kickstarter, by the way, not we are not part founders. They are fairly established micro brands are start. I don't want to name names, but you are start collecting uh, pre uh, deposits for their watch, and they'll tell you the watch you'll get it one two years later. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's totally fine to be quite frank, mm -hmm. as long as the terms are clear. And the brands do their level best to meet the timeframes that they've set out and preferably beat them. That would be ideal. Uh, I don't see an, an issue with it at all. It's no different from a Kickstarter model other than the fact that Kickstarter is not in the middle taking its slice of the pie. I mean, one of the brands that I work most closely with is Straum up in Norway. That's S-T-R-A-U-M dot C-O. That's their website. And I work with them on their product development capacity, working on the, the watches themselves. And their first models also had like a lead time and their second models also had a lead time because they work very hard in the research and development process to ensure that the pieces they're putting out there are going to be up to standard and able to survive the environments for which they've been built and then they put that market 
that watch to market. And then if it meets with a positive reception, then they know exactly what they've got to do over the next few months to fulfill those orders. I don't see any issue with it whatsoever, as long as the company is legit and honest and you know mm-hmm. willing to refund the customer if everything goes awry and there is no products at the end of the day. Fair enough. The, the reason why I ask it as well, because I think um, there's been quite a bit of backlash for certain brands as well that they say that if you are um, a well-known brand, you shouldn't be collecting deposit, um, especially if you're going to wait one year and the track record has been one year plus several delays as well. Um, essentially, yeah, it, it's, it's uh, and there's no early bird purchase as well. There's no incentive for those people to get it. It's just purely on the benefits of those brands um, to get in a way the capital funded. Yeah. Are you talking about Ming? That's uh, one of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, well, you know, okay, let's use Ming as a working example because I recently mm-hmm. bought my first Ming and it's over there on my shelf mm-hmm. in my office. I haven't worn yeah. it. It didn't really mm-hmm. suit me when I put it on, unfortunately. But yeah, that was a long process. And to be quite frank, when a brand is at that stage, I do think that it's a bit much. You know, at this point, the watches should be made and should be in stock and you should sell them um, to your audience that has been forced to wait for many years prior to get the pieces that they want on their wrist. But the thing is, that's in a perfect world. And that's what I know Arcanaut is aiming for. And I know that's what Straum is aiming for, because obviously these brands, both of the guys that I'm working with, they want to have retailers around the world. They want to have representation. They want to build a network. They want people to be able to walk into a store and buy the watch they want without having to jump through any hoops. Mm -hmm. Ming is not playing that game. Ming has never played that game. Ming was one of the proponents of FOMO. Like it created this cult around itself almost. And you just couldn't get a Ming for love nor money. And for years and years and years, if you were able to secure one, then you could guarantee yourself a profit by flipping it immediately. Now, I've bought the GMT, can't remember the number of it, I've forgotten, I'm sorry, but it's the gilt version. It's the nice teal dial with the sort of gold. It's a lovely looking thing, it really is. But if you wanted to sell that now, then it's already going below retail. So the Ming bubble does not look like it is still intact. And that may change the way of them doing business. It may be the end of the company. You know, when a company bursts onto the scene like Ming did and turns everything on its head and makes people salivate for days, then you normally say you've got five years. You've got a five-year window of cool. And that's that's about the amount of rope that the industry and the consumers will give you before you can take the piss no more. Sorry if I'm not allowed to say that on, on air. You can no, you are. We're a full transparent podcast, right? Anything goes. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, we've seen it when brands push it a bit too far. And Ming had a strategy, and it's totally worked for them. They've been absolutely superb. They've created Mm -hmm. some stunning models, and they've managed to operate in multiple price points, which is really, really impressive. What ticks me off slightly is that they just pushed it maybe a little bit too far. There could have been a moment where they should have said, look, okay, we've actually managed to create these secret projects, and we've made stupendous amounts of cash off this let's just try having stuff in stock with a small like collection because that could have been an interesting evolution point for the brand and that could have kind of justified everything that went before as i believe the practices of say straum or argon uh, not argon anymore sorry space one as it's called as these projects are doing now that they're totally justified in doing that because they need the money to make the watches you know they, they, they don't they can't put the cart before the horse or, you yeah. know, so that's the way it has to go but when you get to that point of success and you've got some good money behind you, enough to try to normalize the brand, to mainstream it, as you were, if I can verbize that, and then put that brand around the world and let it exist in the retail space. It doesn't always have to be the same thing. It certainly doesn't always have to be the same strategy. So maybe they've gone too far. Maybe they tried to jump the shark one too many times and it's just bit them in the ass. But we'll see. 
if they come out with an absolutely stunning model that everybody wants, people will probably still buy it. Because if you make good-looking watches, people will buy them. Yeah, I think what you mentioned is absolutely right. I think the, the latest uh, moon phase that they released as well, it, it stayed on available in stock for quite a while, right? So that's a sign of time, right? That's how it's changing right now. All right, so let's, uh, enough of this sidetrack. Let's go back into Aquanauts for a bit. Yeah, what is your favorite model of all the Aquanauts uh, model available? Yeah. Well, Arcanaut models available, that's a very short list. Um, oh, Arcanaut models I, that, were, that were launched. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. So I guess my favorite one of all time really is just the Dark Matter, the standard Dark Matter Special Edition, mm -hmm. because it is the essence of the brand, and it's it's conservative enough to wear every day. So the Fordite piece, which I own, it's actually how I became part of the Arcanaut team. I was a customer first. I was writing mm -hmm. about the brand. And I went to visit them. I was on my way back from the Arctic. I'd been up in the Arctic with Fortis and I was traveling back down through Sweden. And I stopped off at the Badger Den and met the guys for the first time. Uh, well, not James. I'd met him years before at Selling QP, but met Anders for the first time and saw the watches in person. And I fell in love with it and I decided to buy one. And I think, I think they liked me already. I'm not sure. Maybe <laughs> don't, don't ask them that when I'm in the room. If I'm on the answer, but they respected me at least. So um, I think that they liked the idea of working together at some point. But when I actually put my money where my mouth was and paid, you know, I didn't ask for a journalist discount. I just sent them the money and said, you know, I believe in the project. I believe in you. I think you're doing something special. I think this is what watchmaking needs more of. So I'll take a watch. And I sent them the money and I didn't, I didn't get my Fortnite watch until after I started working for the company. So, you know, that's how patient you got to be sometimes. And then I had the opportunity to join them and I did. And I eventually got my Fordite watch. And then a customer wanted my dial. A very a customer that had been waiting for ages to find a dial that they liked. And they said, oh, I want the one that he's got. So I said, okay, you can have my dial. So we took, we took my watch to bits and put it in a new case for him and sent it off. And I waited again for a month or two to find another dial. And I was like, okay, I'll take this one for now. And we'll see how it goes. You know, I, I, I'm never going to put myself before the brand. I'm never going to put myself before any of the brands that I work for. And, you know, we're here to grow a community, a genuine community, and to share that passion and enjoyment of the watches and it, you know, experience the difference of wearing an Arcanaut. And if someone wants to do that and it requires me to give up my personal piece, then they're more than welcome to it. But I personally love the dark matter because I think that the case, everyone always talks about the dials, but for me, the case is actually what I really, really love. I just think it's like a UFO that's crash landed on my wrist. And every time I look at it, I'm like, and this did a really good job. I don't know what he was drinking when he designed it, but it's a really good job. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So on, on that note, could you tell us what is the, what the future lies in for Arcanaut? What is the, the end vision for this brand? Well, end vision, that's a good question. I mean, we hope really to be able to create a brand that outlives us all. That's the goal. So we're not really here for that five years of cool that I spoke about before. We really do want to do things properly and establish a following that can sustain the brand's existence for, yeah, decades, centuries even. I think we've got off to a really good start. I think the identifiable silhouette of the Arcanaut case that Anders created is the kind of thing that is gold dust in the watch industry. If you have that iconic or potentially iconic outline to a case, then you can build a whole brand around that. If you're sensible and if you listen to the people enough Never listen to people too much. Not everybody is right. But if there is a consensus in your community that you need to do something or you need to create a watch that isn't already on the market, then it's worth paying attention to that. And if you don't take stylistic direction from your audience, at least take 
um, an emotive direction. So, for example, for us, we've heard that people love, love, love the watch, but they would like an integrated bracelet or they would like it to be smaller or they'd like a smaller option as well. And so the thing that we have with the first watch is that adding or retrofitting an integrated bracelet to it is quite difficult. Redesigning the lug fitting is possible. And in the process, we might as well reduce the size slightly to try and tick those boxes. And so we're going to try and expand our wearability, shall we say, first and foremost, so that the audience broadens. And that'll be the next step for us uh, in a year. We're not going to get rid of the model we have now, not at all. That will always remain as like the core Arcanaut, like the, the prototypical Arcanaut. But what comes after will hopefully enable us to tap into new audiences without sacrificing our core ideals. Because, of course, it's always easy to break into new demographics if you just throw the brand handbook out of the window and start from scratch. But we need everything to be consistent. Everything has to make sense. There always has to be this twist of madness, as Anders says. So we're going to improve our movements. We're going to start modifying the basic Soprod calibers that we carry. And then we're going to work with Chronode to develop our own proprietary automatic caliber to begin with. And from there on, who knows? We might add some complications at some point. We certainly have plans for new models in the future. And this is working on a follow-up to the Arc 2 and also a very unusual model with a totally new case shape, which I can't reveal much about now. And I'm also working on a new integrated stainless steel sports watch design that we might use for Arcanauts. So there's a lot of collection building and catalog expansion to come and we hope that in doing so we'll be able to tell the same story but just to more people and that'll sustain us for time time and time and eternity you know right right so on that note when you mentioned I, I like the fact that you mentioned on the, the wearability part because that is the first thing that comes to my mind when i scroll through the arcanaut website right um, like the first thing that caught my eye was the 42 because I like the fact that it's uh, very unique and nobody else would have the same piece as you. Then I start scrolling down and looking into the dimension of the watch. And I believe it's close to 50 millimeter lock to lock, um, something like that. Um, yeah, and for someone that I think predominantly over here in Asia, we have pretty small wrists, right? Uh, and I'll typically yeah. lock to like we stay around no more than 47, 48 millimeter. Oh. And that's really pushing it already. Um, so yeah, I think that there'll be a lot of folks over here in Asia. We have, like we call it the small risk syndrome. Would really mm -hmm. appreciate that and we could be able to enjoy our <laughs> right? Yeah, So hopefully it so does happen, yeah. It, it will happen, yeah, it absolutely will. And yeah, of course we have that um, regional market in mind and also mm -hmm. obviously women over in Europe and the US have also expressed a desire for a slightly smaller lug to lug. But just to touch on that, Anders would have a fit if he heard you saying it was 50 millimeters lug to lug. He, he reckons it's 41. But let me tell you this. <laughs> it depends where you measure it from. And it makes mm -hmm. a massive, massive difference. So the underside of the Arcanaut case, because it is curved and ergonomically fitted to the wrist, the tip of the underside of both lugs is rather close together. It's more like 41 or 42. The outside tip of the upper part of the lug is more like 48. But... The real key thing when it comes to the wearability is the ergonomic strap because it plugs into the edge of the case and increases its theoretic or no increases its actual lug to lug by another couple of millimeters on each side. So it does get pretty sizable. Now I've got a 16.5 centimeter wrist, relatively flat wristed, and it fits my wrist. But I would say to anybody 
if you are smaller than 16 and a half centimeters, just join the mailing list and wait for next year's novelties because I think that it's a, it'd be a bit of a bit of a mission to get that on your wrist if you've got a very very tiny wrist. But it is coming, and we're aware of it. I mean, more people have to have the chance to experience this case, so we're glad to do it. I mean, that's what we, we previously spoke about as well. I mean, uh, the measurement could only uh, like that is gauge so far, right? Um, there's the numbers of it and there's reality. Sometimes it's just how it curves and how it works. We have seen watches that should not work on paper. I think Atelier One Perception with one of the integrated places watches, especially for integrated places watches as well, you have to try it in person. And hopefully one day we'll get to try Arconaut watches as well and decide for ourselves if it works for us, right? So still waiting for that day to come. <laughs> Well, we'll send you one. As soon as we've got some prototypes built up, we'll send one for review and you can have a look at it and then you can, yeah, you can share your first-hand experience of it. And if you have any ideas of like what you would change about it, then by all means, let us know because we are interested to get that kind of feedback. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Um, perhaps let's, let's have a couple more questions before we close this off. Um, we talk about communities and so on, like, and especially you being in the industry for over 20 years. I believe the community has evolved tremendously, especially in the past three years. Do you think that has taken the right turn or does it have it gone backwards? Oh God, no, no, no. It's definitely gone <laughs> in the right way. Um, when I started in the industry, there was no such thing as, as a community, not, certainly not on the level that we're talking about today. I, I guess the, the major group around the time of my career beginning would be the Panaristi. And even they were in like, you know, not as big as they became in, in the first decade of this century, but they uh, they were known as the group of like ultimate watch nerds. There was nothing bigger in the industry than to be a Panaristi. Um, obviously, the advent of Red Bar has really, really, really democratized the nerdiness of the industry, I think, and that's just a wonderful thing. So, so many people now have a chapter, a Red Bar chapter within driving distance of them that, the opportunity to meet like-minded people is greater than it ever has been before. And of course, this was exacerbated by the pandemic and people became even more desirous of being part of these communities, but it was in a very healthy state before. You know, I think the heyday of Red Bar in my personal experience of it was probably 2017 to 19. And I was at Red Bar meetings all the time. We started Red Bar Manchester in that period, I think. And I was lucky enough to be working with Nomos in the States at that point, And I did a lot of Red Bar events over there. And, you know, if you're talking to somebody that's outside of the industry, like a normal person, a muggle, as I call them sometimes, you know, if you chat into one of these muggles, they're like, they don't believe that luxury watches exist. They don't even believe that people make watches anymore. They're like, oh, I thought robots did that. It's like, no, no, no. We still like have watchmakers and it's quite a big thing to some of us. And you'd be tricked into believing that you're on your own, that you're just on an island of weirdness and that you just love these mechanical marvels for no good reason. And then you walk into a red bar meeting and there's 35 other weirdos all like, you know, sharing their watches and standing around tables and pouring over like misprints on dials and like ooing and ahhing over the state of someone's patina, which in the old days was just an old watch. And now it's like, oh, wow, it's patinaed in a really nice way. As in like, oh, that got crap well. Like what a weird thing to be talking about. And we, we mean it, like we actually mean it. And so, um, yeah, it's hard to get one's head around how much the community aspect is broken in our favor. But I think it's just a wonderful thing and long may it continue. Right, great. I think all you mentioned is totally true. When I moved from Malaysia to Singapore um, last last year, 
very start of last year, I did Red Bar and a couple of other watch groups. Um, was one of the first friends that I've made here in Singapore, right? Um, and it's just filled with a lot of friendly people, and it's just very easy to get into. Just bring in your watches, and and that's it. You're one of the guys right now, and you just click, right? So that's that. Yeah. All right. So perhaps one last question: What uh, is currently in your radar for uh, in terms of your next pieces in mind? Yeah. Ooh, how many can I give you? I've got a few. <laughs> as many as you want. <laughs> Are you sure about that? You know, <laughs> try to keep this podcast under an hour. Okay, right. So, so the things that have caught my eye, but I won't be able to buy myself, really come from the only watch auction that's coming up in. November. So I love Singer Reimagined. I have a huge respect for Marco Boricino and his design sensibilities. And they've teamed up with Genus. I don't know if you know Genus, but um, I was lucky enough to meet their CEO, Catherine Henri, and she is incredibly stylish and cool. And I couldn't imagine two cooler people working together on a project than Marco and Catherine and what they've come up with for me is just the, the show stopping winner of only watch. Actually, I have a podcast myself as well called the real time show. And we did a rundown of only watch and we got, we had to choose like which our favorite watches were from the auction. That one for me was the one that absolutely stole the show. So the singer reimagined X Genus eight track watch for only watch. That's something very special. There's only going to be one of them, but it's worth looking at. You know why? I think it's worth everybody looking at it. Not because you can get it, because only one person is going to be able to get it, but because the way the movement is decorated is really unusual. It has like black frosted surfaces, but with polished rose gold anglage. And wow. it took me a while and a little bit of discussion with some of my watchmaking friends for me to work out exactly how they'd achieved that. But it's really unusual. And if you're a fan of watchmaking and unusual finishes, I would say go and check that out because that's really special. Um, weirdly, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Chanel J12. I don't own one. I've always had a real soft spot for it. I know, I know. Yeah, I can see your face. Um, it's one that it, it raises eyebrows in, uh, in our podcast community all the time. People are like, is he serious or is he joking? I'm like, no, no, I actually mean it. Like, I think that it's okay. Iconic is a word that's overused. And this is the second time I've uttered it in this podcast. So forgive me for falling into the trope, but it is an iconic ceramic watch. For me, it is the archetype, archetypal ceramic sports watch. Weird that it's by Chanel, but it's not really weird that it's by Chanel anymore. It was weird that it was by Chanel when it came out, but now with the Canissi movements, I feel like it's kind of all matched up with itself and it's a really viable prospect at sub 10K. And I really love the Mademoiselle ones that have the Coco Chanel figures on the dial. And there's a couple currently available in Watches of Switzerland and England, and I keep thinking about buying one, but I don't know. I won't probably because there are other things that are going to take my money, but that is something that is always on the edge of my wish list. The thing that I'm most excited about is going to be released, I think in October, but you can already see sketches of it on the brand's Instagram account. And that's uh, the Berneron Mirage. So Sylvain Berneron is the creative director of Breitling. Uh, he's a lovely chap, by the way, and an exceptionally talented designer. And he's starting his own brand called Berneron. And he's making... White gold and yellow gold versions of the Mirage. There's going to be one available every month, one of each metal available every month for the next 10 years. So there'll ultimately be 120 pieces of each, 240 pieces in total. And this watch is unlike almost anything else you've ever seen. The closest thing people will liken it to when they see it for the first time is the Cartier Crash. 
because it's uh, not got a single line of symmetry in the whole watch design. The hands are curved, the subdials are wobbly, the case is like a beautiful lump of molten gold almost, and the movement itself is also made almost entirely of gold. So frosted yellow gold plates and white gold plates, it's absolutely unbelievable. So that's Berneron, B-E-R-N-E-R-O-N, and yeah, the Instagram is just at Berneron, and that's coming out around October, but that's going to be absolutely smashing in my opinion and then i got two more and then i'll i'll stop (laughs) (laughs) so both widely at the opposite end of the spectrum so i have got a real soft spot for the straum jan mayan collection because i worked on the development of that watch collection with lasse and einstein of straum and we went on an adventure to jan mayan sailing for four days across the arctic ocean to get to this remote volcano which we tried to climb we failed we nearly died it's a big story there's a video about it i won't bore you with the details here but it was wonderful and we achieved our goal and that was to analyze the textures and the environment of the island of yan mayan and make watches inspired by and built for that exact environment and i think they achieved that superbly and the special edition red dial which was my baby has already been and gone that's sold out on fratello and now there's a blue a white a green and a black in the core collection um, available and they're just a brilliant watch for sub 2000 uh, euros it's absolutely peerless in my opinion i'm heavily biased of course but you know that's my opinion i only work with brands that i like and of course we've got the new arconaut releases coming in august and september and october so stay tuned to arconaut and the last watch that's on my list probably my grail watch is by my friend dr rebecca struthers and her husband craig and that is the Project 248 from Struthers Watchmakers in the UK. Have you ever heard of that one? I have not, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's you're in for a treat because when you check that out, you'll be blown away. They are absolute wizards at the bench. Wow. Yep, I think there are two I'm definitely going to check out right after the call. So, um, yeah, you might have caused my wallet some damage if it goes well. <laughs> Sorry. <But yeah. laughs> That's the thing about watch community, right? I mean, you start finding out things that you don't know, which you thought you, you know a lot already, and you start finding and you start digging more. And the more you dig, the more trouble you get. And, you yeah, know, I'm in trouble too. <laughs> <laughs> are you wearing yeah. a ZF Defy right now? I am right now. I am the Defy right. skeleton. So- yeah. I've got a problem with Zenith at the moment. Mm-hmm. The new pilot announced in 2023, just the time and date one. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. How dare they? I don't want to spend <laughs> like 10,000 or 8,100 on another watch. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's beautiful. Man, I, well, I mean, that, that's, I would say that's like the, the problem we watch at collector slash enthusiast space all the time, right? You just, sometimes you just hope that it's, it's, it's bad. But yeah, it's crap. But it's <laughs> but I was like, oh man, I have to buy it now. It's like, there's no excuse, right? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I totally yeah. resonate with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big problems, eh? <laughs> yeah. So, honestly, like sometimes during, like, uh, after watches and wonder, there is actually a sigh of relief for me, or like, yes. sometimes it's like, oh, okay, it's, it's a slow year this time. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You walk yeah. out of Polexpo like mopping your brow, saying, "Oh, thank God that was rubbish." <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, all right. It, it, I think this is a perfect way to end it. It's been a pleasure having you here, Rob. And yes, 
I will hope this. I mean, we have more collaborations to come. We'll probably invite you for further episodes. I mean, to get your thoughts and insights of like future releases and so on. Um. So yeah, stay tuned for that. And then thanks everyone for joining today. Thanks, Bye. James. Thanks, Woody. Bye. Bye.